can open your word. Thank you again for the privilege we have of being able to be reminded. These things that we will talk about this morning probably is, are not new, but they are important reminders for us. So open our eyes again and uh, draw us to worshiping you, being amazed at your great love. In your name I pray. Amen. Now, if you take your scriptures and turn to Matthew chapter 11, <clears throat> we're going to be looking at a couple of verses in Matthew chapter 11 this morning. We're going to delay Amos for a little while because, if I may just give you a heads up on it, <clears throat> um, I'll be here next week, but the week after this, Ruth and I will be gone, and um, Rusty will be speaking, and after that we'll probably do a couple uh, Christmas messages, and then we'll get into uh, the book of Amos, just to give you a little heads up. Um, and as it turns out this morning, it wasn't my plan for it to be a Christmas message, but believe it or not, I guess I'm just kind of thick-headed. Um, it didn't dawn on me until I was actually driving to church this morning that, oh, this is kind of a Christmassy message this morning. So I hope you don't mind. It is uh, the Christmas season, so I guess it's okay. We're going to be looking at a little bit of a section of Matthew chapter 11. But before we get there, we need to do a really, really significant review. Uh, and the really significant review is not of any previous messages uh, that I've preached per se, but um, just... Probably a better way to put it is maybe a little overview of the Old Testament. And we'll touch on a few New Testament views as well. <clears throat> the story of the Old and New Testament is an intriguing story. I've called it before, the, and it's not new with me, it's not unique with me. It's a term that's been used by theologians for many, many decades. Um, and that is uh, that the scriptures in, in its whole is presenting a historical redemptive story. I like that term. It's presenting the story of redemption. From Genesis 1 all the way through to Revelation chapter 22. In the midst of that story, we find all sorts of little sub-stories, sub-plots. But they're all connected to the same story. And they're all developing the same story. And the story, of course, is the story of redemption. And we cannot talk, obviously, about the story of redemption without having Christ in the center of that story. Because that story is focused on Jesus Christ. Now, I'd argue the Old Testament as well as the New Testament is presenting that story. They obviously the two presented in very different ways, and it's by necessity it must, because the Old Testament is looking forward to how that story is going to be fulfilled. In the New Testament, it's looking backwards on how it was fulfilled, and yet how it is yet to be fulfilled. Does that make sense? Because we have the story of redemption already accomplished, correct? But we also have the story of it ultimately fulfilled in eternity, when Christ returns. And so the story by very nature is going to look different in the Old Testament than it does in the New Testament. Not a different story, but it's going to have different flavor to it, if that makes sense. There are, as I've grown in my understanding of the scriptures and matured perhaps in, in, in my understanding of theology, I have, I have had a uh, general shift over the decades in my thinking, recognizing more and more of what I would call, and others have called, a continuity between the Old Testament and New Testament. Whereas there was a time when I saw almost a, a dramatic and complete stark discontinuity between the Old and New Testament, I now see it more, much more continuity or connectiveness inter-threading, inter as it were, of Old and New Testament, understanding that there are definitely some uniquenesses to the Old Testament and the New Testament. So you can't say it's a complete continuity, but I'm seeing more and more of that connectiveness or continuity between the Old and New Testaments than I've ever seen before. 
At the same time, and one of those ways in which we see a continuity is the presentation of Jesus' Old Testament, presentation of Jesus' New Testament, presentation of redemption, Old Testament, presentation of redemption, New Testament. Um, it may sound foreign to most of us now, but I remember growing up thinking that the Old Testament saints were saved by, what do you think? By law and sacrifice. That's what I used to think. And it wasn't until later on that I started realizing more and more that it had nothing to do with that. And when I started understanding that, I could start to see the continuity. Old Testament Abraham, for example, was saved by obedience to the law or by faith. By faith. It's really clear in the scriptures. Um, so there is, there is a continuity, a very strong continuity between the Old and New Testament. We have some different covenants, no question about that. And, and the fleshing out of those covenants in many cases look different. There's no question about that. Although even in there we have some continuity, don't we? Like in the Old Testament, they had to sacrifice, didn't they? Are we free of sacrifice today? No, we're not, are we? It's still, there's sacrificing, isn't there? Oh, we're not killing animals anymore, are we? We have a sacrifice of praise. We have a sacrifice of our lives. What does Romans chapter 12 say? We are to present ourselves what? A living sacrifice. So the theme is still there. There's a continuity still, isn't there? It's a pretty dramatic continuity. But there are some things that stand in interesting contrast. Old Testament and New Testament. And those are some of the things I want to point out to you. And I think if we, if we are going to... The one, thing, the one thing I want to point out this morning is this. And you're going to see it real quickly. I'm not going to tell you what it is. I'm just going to lay it all out for you. And as we walk our way through it, we'll start to pick it up. Genesis chapter 2. You don't need to turn there. But Genesis chapter 2 is the second of the two stories of God's creation. The first is Genesis chapter 1, where he's looking at all the seven days of creation, correct? All six days, I'm sorry, of creation. That was not a trick question. The six days of creation. In Genesis chapter 2, we have a focus upon what? Anybody know? The creation of man and woman, right? Mankind. Is created. So the focus is in Genesis. The focus in Genesis chapter two is on the sixth day of creation. There's several interesting things about the sixth day of creation that I think are very enlightening in light of what we're going to talk about as we work our way through up till Matthew chapter eleven. In, in Genesis chapter two, God decides to make man in His image, right? So He makes man in His own image. What's interesting, in, among many things that are interesting in Genesis chapter 2, is just about immediately after Adam is created, God, if I may say this, is, is hanging out with Adam. Right? Isn't he? He talks to him. He has dialogue with him. Now, Adam, Adam is not, not, I'll be honest with you, Adam is not presented as talking to God, not until Genesis 3, the fall. There doesn't seem in Genesis chapter 2, at least it's not presented, it's not important, evidently, that Adam is talking to God. God is talking to Adam. And he tells him several things. For example, he tells him, <clears throat> everything in the garden, what? Is yours. Everything in the garden is yours to enjoy. Just don't eat of the, what? 
And then, he, according to Genesis chapter 2, he tells him to then go on and give him an assignment, doesn't he? What's the assignment? What? Tend the garden, yes. And then what else? What? Made the animals, good. And then later on at the end of Genesis chapter 2, appropriation, correct? So those are the three big statements that God gives Adam. So he explains to him what he's given to him. He shows how good he is in that, doesn't he? And he's having this dialogue with him, or at least monologue. He's talking to Adam. There is a, a nearness, isn't there? Correct? There is at some level of fellowship, isn't there? Of love. Then we come to Genesis chapter 3. And everything goes south, doesn't it? Everything goes south. And then God walks in the garden and pulls the day. And he walks in the garden and pulls the day. He calls out for Adam, doesn't he? Adam, where are you? And it's striking what has happened from Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3, isn't it? In Genesis chapter 2, Adam is evidently in rapt attention to God, isn't he? You know he is, correct? In Genesis chapter 2? Well, why do we know? Well, because he what? He names the animals, doesn't he? He does eat of the other, evidently he's eaten of the other trees too, right? Of the other parts of the garden. And they become fruitful and multiply. So he obviously listened to God. There was a rapt attention to what God had to say. But suddenly, God comes walking in the garden and is nowhere to And we know why. He's hidden because of, not because he's naked, he thinks it is, but it's not. But because he sinned. And so God mercifully still talks to him, doesn't he? But his, his speech to him is firstly condemning, isn't it? It's absolutely condemning. But then he clothes him. He promises a redeemer. But then, lastly, he does what? What? Throws him out of the garden. And you can't miss the point that the garden is obviously symbolic of fellowship. Isn't it? Deep, abiding fellowship. He throws him out of the garden. And he not only just throws him out of the garden, but he stations so that Adam and Eve can't come back in the garden. Now, I would argue that is a protection for Adam so he doesn't eat the tree of life and live forever in sin. But even beyond that, it's still a condemnation, isn't it? It's a consequence of a sin. Horrifying consequence of a sin. Now, Adam and Eve go out and live their life. They have children. Things don't go well, do they? They don't go well at all. And it starts going south real quick. You have, you have Cain killing Abel pretty quickly. 
And then it gets worse from there, relatively quickly, to the point where God says, what? I'm going to wipe out the world with flood. And he wipes out all mankind except for Noah's family with flood. How striking the change from Genesis chapter 2, isn't it? Isn't it stunning how quickly everything went south? It's grievous, horrifying. How quickly it went south. But God's God of love and the God of mercy. He rescues Noah and his family. Pure mercy. He reestablishes them after the flood. What happens? What's the next story after after the flood? Everybody remember? Tower of Babel. What does man do immediately? They begin to rebel. Immediately. Shortly after that, of course, we know that the result of that is suddenly nobody's talking to anybody else because they can't. And they all separate into language groups. And then shortly after that, God, being a merciful God, breaks through time and space and rescues a man. I mean, Abraham. Right? And there's a communication that takes place with Abraham, isn't there? He calls him to go to a place. They'll tell him later but to leave everything. He does. He leaves. Eventually, the result is ending up, you know, ultimately down in Egypt. And there's 400 years of slavery, isn't there? We're skipping over a lot of material by nature. Have to. <clears throat> but God calls the Hebrew people out of Egypt after 400 years, doesn't he? He raises up a person who is Moses. But before he calls them out, he raises up Moses, who was raised in Pharaoh's household, right? Could very well have been in line to become a Pharaoh. God calls him out. How's God calling him out? From Pharaoh and from the Egyptians. What? How's God, what's God used to call him out? His sin. His sin. Killing someone. Okay. Before then. Was it, was it before then or after them? Then. Burning bush. Right? Moses is after. Moses is just living life, right? And suddenly, comes around the bend, and what does he see? A burning bush that's not being consumed, right? That's kind of intriguing, isn't it? And God speaks to Moses, doesn't he? What's the first thing he says to Moses? Take your shoes off. And by the way, the implication of take your shoes off is what? He says it right there in the text. Because the ground you're standing in is what? It's holy ground. What makes it holy? He's there, right? And the obvious implication of that is take your shoes off. Why? You ever ask yourself a question? Why do you tell him to take his shoes off? Shoes are impure. 
Well, it's not so much, that, that's, that, that's right, it's not so much the shoes themselves are dirty, but, although that's true, but the real idea is what? Yes, the real idea is Mo Moses, the ground you're standing on is holy ground. Take your shoes off because your, your shoes, in a very, your, the impurity of your shoes, in a very real way, represent the impurity of you. Right? In humbleness and humility, because you as unholy are standing on holy ground, and the reason why it's holy is because God's there, and the idea is you are not me in any way. You know what he's really saying to him? There's a difference between you and me. There's an obvious, undeniable difference. In Moses, there's ultimately nothing you can do about it. I'm holy, you're not. In you, in your natural condition, you cannot be here. You just can't. That's the picture. Now, God's merciful, right? Should Moses have been consumed? Well, yes. Because even when he takes his shoes off, he's still what? Sinful. He's still sinful, as we know, right? And God speaks to Moses. <laughs> it's incredible to really think about it. And the time goes on. They reach a point where According to what God has said, Moses goes before Pharaoh and is God's representative to Pharaoh, correct? And then all the plagues come, don't they? At the end of all the plagues, <coughs> Pharaoh tells the Hebrew people to leave and fulfills God's promises that they receive the spoils of Egypt, right? And they leave. <coughs> Moses cha or Pharaoh changes his mind. He begins to pursue. God does what? Before he opens the Red Sea, God does what? He stands between. Remember, he's a pillar of fire and a pillar of smoke. He stands in between. The charging army of Egypt. And the Hebrew people. And then God tells Moses what to do. Moses does it, and what happens? The Red Sea opens up, and they cross the dry land, and you know the story. The Egyptians all drown when it closes back up again. From there, they travel across a little while, and they come to... Have you remember? What do they come to next? Mount Sinai. And God speaks. He speaks to Moses. But he speaks to Moses before they even go up on top of the mountain. And before Moses goes on top of the mountain. What does he tell Moses? Anybody remember? Anybody? What he tells Moses is, you need to cordon off the mountain. The people are not allowed on this mountain. They're not allowed to even touch the mountain. Not even to come near the mountain. 
But then, animals were involved. Even the animals were not allowed to touch them. Correct. Why? Holy ground. Holy ground. Why is it holy ground? God's there. God's there. Absolutely. And so, the mountain is cordoned off. Why? Well, because the answer is the same. Isn't it? Because all the people are what? They're all unholy. Now, God's merciful, right? He allows Moses to come. Is Moses holy or unholy? He's a sinner too, isn't he? But he allows Moses to come. But people can't come near. They just can't. You see the theme? They're just not allowed. They can hear the rumbling. They see the smoke, don't they? And what the Bible descri- how does the Bible describe the people as they hear the rumbling and feel the rumbling and they see the smoke? How does God describe the people in, in Exodus? What? Absolutely fearful, aren't they? They're absolutely fearful. Rightly so? Yeah, rightly so. Absolutely. Absolutely. Later on, the scriptures record that anybody who is to see God, what would happen to them? They would die, right? They would die. So, was it right for them to be fearful? Yeah. Moses goes up onto the mountain and receives what? Ten Commandments. The people reveal what about themselves right away? Their sinfulness. Don't they? How do they reveal their sinfulness right away? The golden calf. God tells Moses what's happening down, down below. And he comes down and sees the smashing the tablets. And you've heard me say it before. That was all a picture. That was not just Moses' anger. That was a picture of even before you received or heard the, co- the covenant, you broke it already. If nothing else, feeling the ground shake and seeing the cloud and hearing the roar and rumble should have caused you to cower in worship. Should it not have? And they did what? They worshiped the golden calf. God was merciful to them. You see, there's this interplay, isn't there? There's an interplay between sin, consequences, because a bunch of people died there, 27,000 people, didn't they? And mercy. In the midst of it all, God invites Moses right back up to the mountain, doesn't he? It's incredible. Well, after all that said and done, They start wandering through again. They build an ark, right? They build an ark. The ark contains a couple things. Anybody remember what it contains? Ten Commandments and what else? Aaron's rod. What? It's a man. Absolutely. And they, they walk. And they walk. They build a tabernacle too, don't they? And later on, the tabernacle becomes what? A temple. But it's interesting, in the Old Testament law, as it's laid out how worship is supposed to take place, the, the, the explanation of worship is stunning, isn't it? For example... Are the people allowed to go in the Holy of Holies? 
Ever? Never. You know what that means? The people are never allowed to come truly into the presence of God. It's never allowed. You see the connection all the way back to Genesis chapter 2 and onwards? The interplay between Genesis 2 and 3? And once a year, the high priest only was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies after a really significant cleansing of himself and a bunch of sacrificing. And he was to go into the Holy of Holies once a year to cry out for God's mercy. Wasn't he? Because that's all they had. That's all their only hope was God's mercy. That theme continues, what we're talking about here continues throughout the Old Testament. <clears throat> One of the interesting discontinuities between the Old and New Testament, that's an important one, it's an absolutely important discontinuity between the Old and New Testament, is in the Old Testament what you find is that God tends to be seen as somewhat far off. Maybe a better way to put it, man is clearly presented as being far off from God. Isn't it? Isn't he? Man is continually presented as being far off from God. God is presented as being <laughs> far from man. I mean, you see it, right? Isaiah chapter 6. In, in, in Isaiah's vision, where he sees the Lord high and lifted up and his train filling the temple, what's his response? Woe is me! For I am a man of unclean lips, and I, I dwell among a people of unclean lips. It's, it's hopeless for, for Isaiah. He's not just commenting and commentating on, this, on that moment in time that, you know, everybody this moment in time is worse than they ever have been. That's not what he's saying. He's giving a commentary on mankind from Genesis 3 to, the, to that present time. That's mankind. That's Isaiah, and that's mankind. And so for Isaiah, the only response that he can possibly have is what? I'm a dead man. I'm starting to sing my funeral dirge. I'm dead. I've seen the Lord. I'm hopeless. And we see God's mercy, don't we? How do we see God's mercy in Isaiah chapter 6? It's a coal on his tongue. One of the seraphs takes a hot, red hot coal and puts it on his tongue. Runs left on the other. And the picture is one of forgiveness, cleansing. Does that make sense? It's mercy. And it's a foreshadowing, as it were, of what was, what was to come 600 years later with Jesus Christ. That's the theme you find throughout the Old Testament. There's discontinuity. In the Old Testament, you find God far off, man far from God, God far from man. He's merciful. He's speaking. He's communicating. He's sending prophets, isn't he? 
But there's just an ongoing farness. Man is described as being afar off, to use the King James language. God is described as being afar off. And all the way through the Old Testament, that's the way it was. In fact, it got so bad, he come to Malachi. <coughs> and God speaks through Malachi and says, if you don't repent, I'm just going to do what? And he becomes silent. There's be no communication. And what happens? 400 years of absolute silence. Talk about far off. Talk about far off. No word. No signs. No prophecies. Not even any condemnations. All they hear is detachment. 400 years. Now we know God still worked, right? But from a man's perspective, from human perspective, oh. is it any wonder, by the way, this is an aside, but is it any wonder that shepherds were terrified on the top of hillside at that point? 400 years, nothing. Any wonder? But then something happened. What happened, you know the story, what happened was there was a baby that was born. Right? There was a baby that was born. It wasn't just any old baby. It was a baby born of a virgin. It was the prophesied one. Isaiah chapter 7. Genesis chapter 3. And many other passages prophesied about them. The baby was born. And later on, some wise men from the east went looking for him. Which, by the way, as an aside, they didn't come to the manger. I don't care what your nativity says. They came about two years later, or maybe a little less. Probably just a little bit less than two years later. I doubt he was still living in the manger at that point. <clears throat> that's an aside. That's a free thing. And then Jesus goes into obscurity after going down to Egypt. He goes into obscurity. And then suddenly the obscurity ends at 12, doesn't it? <coughs> When he shows up at the temple, he begins to talk to the leaders, of the, uh, the religious leaders of the day. And this 12-year-old kid begins to talk. And the people in the temple were amazed. And he actually was teaching the people in the temple. And then, Parents come back and get him. Another side, the parents are probably in jail today for that, right? (coughs) 
And then he goes back to obscurity, doesn't he? For another what, 28 or 18 years. And then he shows up on the scene again. And he begins to perform miracles. And he begins to teach, doesn't he? And what is he teaching about? What? The kingdom of God. What? Same thing? Repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. And he, in the midst of all that, he begins to talk about himself too, doesn't he? And he talks about himself. What is he saying? What is he saying? What? He's, he's teaching them that he is the son of God, isn't he? He's teaching them that he is the Messiah. And that's what he's laying out every step of the way. And that he is God himself. But there's something dramatic that is changing. That brings us to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, starting in verse 25. You can follow along as I read. <clears throat> At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Something dramatic has changed. In the Old Testament, God revealed himself, didn't he? Repeatedly. 39 books of the Old Testament, he revealed himself dramatically, clearly, powerfully. But something has changed. The Son has come. Verse 27, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. One of the Son's tasks is to do what? Reveal the Father, father right? How does, the, how does the Son reveal the Father? You ever ask yourself that question? He reveals the Father by being the exact representation of the Father. You remember all the way back, we're now journeying back in the Old Testament again. We go back to the Old Testament to Mount Sinai, and we have God giving the commandments, and one of the commandments is, you shall not make any graven images. Well, why not? Because God can't be con contained in the finite, right? And so by trying to contain God into something that's finite, trying to capture the picture of God in something that's finite, it's inherently going to be God representing accurately God or fatally flawed representing God? Fatally flawed, right? And, and then secondarily, you're going to, by default, if we have a, a representation of God, you're going to, by, by default, do what? Worship. Worship the image, correct? So you can't do that, God says to Moses. But ultimately, it's because God is saying, here's the deal. 
there's going to come a day when I'm going to give you an image to represent me. You can worship that one. In fact, it's really appropriate to represent that, to worship that one. Because it's going to be the perfect representation of me. That's Jesus Christ, who Jesus Christ is. He is the perfect representation of the Father. He is worthy of worship. You only know the Father because you know the Son. And the only way we know the Father is through the Son, but only because the, the Son does what? This passage? Jesus through the other people. So what is Jesus doing? What has happened after Genesis chapter 3? Yeah, but what happened because of Genesis chapter 3? Yes, but Genesis, go back all the Genesis chapter 3, though. What has happened? Loss of fellowship. Loss of fellowship. Complete inability, right? And what does he say here in, in, in Matthew chapter 11? And it was that way ever since, wasn't it? Take your shoes off your feet, for example. But here something changes. Because the exact representation of the Father is doing something. He's revealing to some people the Father. You know what's strikingly missing from the statement? Take your shoes off your feet. Isn't it? Isn't it missing? What's missing? There's no walls being built. No, no boundaries saying, don't you dare cross this. Is there? Is there anything? No. If he chooses to reveal, and by the way, don't miss the point, he's not choosing to reveal to some because they're worthy. Correct? That's the one thing that hasn't changed. Old Testament, New Testament, isn't it? Sinners, Old Testament, sinners, New Testament. That, that's very strong continuity. What's discontinuous is this. Jesus is saying, I will reveal to some the Father. And there's nothing wrong in that offer if it's revealed to you. There's none of that. And he doesn't even say, take your shoes off. Because the place you stand at is on holy ground. Remember that, because we're going to pick up on that just a little bit. He doesn't say that, does he? And then he goes on and he says this. Verse 28, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The implication, by the way, in that text is you've got to realize <clears throat> that you labor and are heavy laden. And by the way, labor heavy laden doesn't mean your boss is giving you too much to work or to do. You know what he's talking about here when he says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. Sin and and. Take the idea of sin and tie it into the call of the law. Because the call of the law is heavy, isn't it? Isn't it? The call is overwhelming, isn't it? The demands of the law, it does nothing but what? Crush you, doesn't it? It does nothing but crush the, the, the one who knows the law. 
And according to Romans, we either know the law or we have the law written on our heart, right? Even if we don't actually have the law or haven't actually received the law. In either case, it is crushing. And he's speaking to those who are in that category. And the only way they can know the category is verse 27. The only way we could know that we are people who labor and are heavy laden is because God has revealed the Father to us through the Son. And that revealing is in relation to our need. So he reveals to us our need. He reveals to us our failure. He reveals to us our absolute devastation. And we realize in that moment, we realize that all my labor is coming to naught. That's why we're heavy laden. The heavy laden isn't primarily that I'm working so hard. The heavy laden is because we're real, we, because the Spirit has caused us through, the, through you know, Christ that all I do amounts to nothing. I have nothing to show. Now, it's really important we understand this. He says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, revealed by the Spirit. And he says, I will what? Give you rest. Now, please. When you see now the word rest in the New Testament and Old Testament, your mind better be rushing somewhere. Huh? Which we learned about where? No, we learned it recently where? Hebrews. It better be rushing us to Hebrews. This rest doesn't mean what you think it means. When, when the Son, as the perfect representation of the Father, reveals the Father to some, the reality is they are going to be people who will instantly recognize all my laboring is nothing. It's worse than pointless. It condemns me. I am overwhelmingly laden. Why? Because as we learned in Hebrews, I will not enter into my rest. I cannot enter into my rest. And Jesus, in the midst of this horror of realization, because that's the horror, isn't it? When the, when the Father's revealed via the Son, the horror is everything I've done is meaningless. Everything I've tried to do to earn favor with God condemns me further and that I am so heavy laden with something I cannot bear. Jesus has come to me and I will give you entrance into rest. It's stunning, isn't it? That is absolutely stunning. Which is why he goes on in the text and says... <clears throat> Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What is he talking about here? Well, I want you to notice several things. He says, take my yoke upon you. Wear my yoke, and a yoke is something that an oxen would wear to pull a plow or whatever. <clears throat> Take my yoke upon you, but notice what he says next. It's my yoke, by the way. You've been carrying your yoke, right? That's the heavy laden, right? Take my yoke, he says, but notice what he says next. 
and learn what? Can't fly over that one too fast. What did Jesus just declare? This is one of those almost discontinuity things from the Old Testament. This is a nearness statement, isn't it? Isn't this strong nearness? He's saying what? He, he's what? He's imminent, yes. What? He's going to teach you. What? Directly. I will teach you. That's what he's saying. Learn from me. And who is he describing? Well, he describes himself right there. See what he says? I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls in me. What does it mean when he says, I am gentle and lowly in heart? Because I think of Jesus in the Gospels, I don't necessarily see someone gentle and lowly in heart. Do you very often? Do you? I mean, he takes a whip to the, in the temple. He rebukes Peter pretty strongly, doesn't he? He rebukes the Pharisees pretty strongly, doesn't he? Doesn't sound, you know, at least from a human standpoint, gentle and lowly in heart. He sounds more like a lion to me. There are, there are those pictures as well. Yeah, absolutely. I don't want to miss that. But I think that ultimately, when he says, I am gentle and lowly in heart, and in me you'll find rest for your souls. You know what he's talking about? His reason for coming. He's talking about his reason for coming. He's talking about his standing in your place. He's talking about taking on your sin and mine. He's talking about absorbing the wrath that belongs to me, belongs to you. It's the height of gentleness. It's the height of lowliness of heart, isn't it? That he who is perfect and deserved no, and had no sin and deserved no wrath takes on your sin and takes on the wrath? Boy, there's someone to learn from, isn't it? There's someone to be taught by. It's because of what he's going to accomplish that in him we find rest for our souls. Because the opposite of rest is what in the scriptures? It's not unrest. It's hell. The opposite of rest is hell, condemnation, wrath. Take my yoke. Learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find absolute rest. You will be rescued from the wrath to come. Now we go back into the Old Testament. Because we have a picture of it. Don't we? The death angel? Wrath? Rest? Don't we? It's a really clear picture. Foreshadowing, as it were. And you can't miss it that you have the cross symbolized in the blood, don't you? On the doorpost and the lintel? There it is. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Of course it is. 
How is it easy? Well, according to the, the broad sweep of the New Testament, my yoke is easy and my burden is light is several fold. Number one, there's no more wrath. We have rest, right? We have rest for our souls. But number two, what else do we learn? Later on, we find out that he, when he's ready to leave, he says, I'm going to send a helper. Can I just commentate for a second? He says he's going to send a helper. And the helper is going to continue to carry the weight and continue to pull. You really just what he's saying. Because of what Christ has done on the cross. The mighty yoke is easy, my burden is light. Here's another one. We can understand this. My, my, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. When we come to the point where we stand before Christ, can I just ask you a quick question? Are we going to be judged by how well we told? What? Are we going to be judged by how well we pulled on the yoke? No, the answer is we're going to be judged by the righteousness we can give. That's the reality. He's doing all the pulling. He did all the pulling on the cross and he continues to do all the pulling every step of the way. <coughs> And that's the beauty of Emmanuel, by the way. God with us. Because when he came near, he said, I promise I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Isn't that what he promised? <clears throat> so the call of the scripture still goes out. Because you know, one of the crazy things, if I may say this, one of the crazy things about Christians is we still are drawn to the wrong yoke, aren't we? aren't we? We still find the wrong yoke attractive, don't we? And too often, I don't know about you, but I find myself, I, I find myself still at the end of the day, I find myself laboring so hard. Do you find yourself there? Just laboring so hard. Our eyes are off Christ. And we're just pulling away. I want to remind you 28 starts by saying something really important. Three words. What are the three words? Come to me. Come to me. Come to me. I don't know about you, but I find I just stupidly go back to the old yoke so often. Don't you? Don't you? Come to me. I'll give you rest. And he's already given us rest if we're his children. But we need to be reminded of it again and again, don't we? How do we get reminded of it again and again? Come to me. Come to me. Learn from me.
drink at the well. The theme goes everywhere, doesn't it? But what a striking contrast between the Old and New Testament. Take your feet off, take your shoes off your feet. Because the ground you stand is holy ground. But then we know the story, right? When Christ was crucified, what happened in the temple? The curtain was ripped from top to bottom. The Holy of Holies was exposed. And he tells us we can now enter the throne of grace boldly, right? Right? Is that what it says? It doesn't say anymore, take your shoes off your feet because the place you stand is holy ground. Why? Because we have his righteousness. That's why. See, when Moses took his, feet off, his shoes off his feet, he was still unholy. But if we have Christ's righteousness, we're holy. And that's what the Bible tells us, doesn't it? We're holy. Wow, is he merciful. Wow, has he been gracious. Wow, does he love us. I can enter into the Holy of Holies. I can approach the throne boldly. Come to me. Learn from me. I am meek and lowly of heart. And you will find rest for your souls. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, help us. As saved people, we still too often find that nasty, disgusting, gross yoke that we used to wear as so attractive. We still find it so desirous. And the reason why we do is because we've forgotten about you. So help us. Yeah.